Welcome to Critical Transit, episode 39. My name is Jeremy, I'm your host, and welcome back to another exciting edition. This week we'll be talking all about bike safety, and uh, not from the uh, physical infrastructure side, but from uh, the behavior angle, you know, what it is that we can do, how we can be safe, confident cyclists out on the street. And also we'll talk a little bit about uh, legal issues and and other things. Uh, My guest is going to be Carrie Caffrey from Cycling Savvy is a bike safety education group. Uh, she is based in Orlando, Florida, although Cycling Savvy has chapters around the uh, around the country, the U.S. Um, you can get in touch with me at criticaltransit.com by emailing feedback at criticaltransit.com, following me on Facebook or Twitter at criticaltransit, or uh, by checking out my posts, and you can, you can contact me that way at streets.mn, a Minnesota-based transportation and urban design uh, site, like blog, I guess you can say. And uh, so after we talk bike safety, we'll be talking about catching up on some of the news items, some things in the news, some uh, some good things, and uh, some absolutely terrifying things. So uh, stay tuned for that. Basically, there are two types of people trying to improve bike safety, and uh, they have very different views on on life as as a bicyclist. Uh, you have on, on one hand you have the group uh, you know the government side and the nonprofit side. A lot of people um, think that uh, bike helmets are the way to improve bike safety. When you think of everybody helmets and um, you know as if bicyclists are just clamoring for helmets and uh, you know they there are so many people that wouldn't bike unless they had a helmet. Um, and then there are people who are trying to improve the streets in terms of uh, adding adding dedicated bicycle facilities and priority bicycle facilities, uh, sort of improving the experience on the street for the, the new bicyclists who are worried about mixing with cars. And um, I don't have to tell you how the first group misses the mark, but I will. Uh, it's because they haven't been on a bike since middle school and they don't know anything about what it's like to drive a bike in traffic to get from A to B on a bike. And uh, but the second group tends to miss the mark as well, at least in terms of not addressing behavior, uh, not addressing things that people need to know about biking safely on the street, uh, about how to handle themselves, how to how to deal with difficult traffic situations. Um, and you know the answer is not just putting infrastructure on the streets to improve the experience for new cyclists because. Uh, people either may not know how to use new facilities or, um, you know, you can't, you're not going to have these new facilities everywhere. You need, people need to uh, understand the dynamics of traffic and know what, what to look out for, uh, know what are the dangerous things that they should not do and, uh, you know, how, do you, how they can uh, sort of sense a dangerous situation coming up. Uh, and that's, that's what Cycling Savvy is doing out there, um, is doing classes and training and, um, you know, and, and defending cyclists who, whose uh, rights are being attacked, essentially. Um, helping people understand how to bike safely and uh, stand up for themselves when, when needed. Um, a lot of this is counterintuitive, because if you ask, uh, if you talk to somebody who wants to bike, you know, let's say, let's say, you know, like, what is it, the 60% of the population that, that wants to bike, uh, but is just, is just, uh, severely afraid of uh, being out there on the street with these five-ton death machines. Uh, talking about cars there, um, if you're new to the show. And so this is, so this is a, you know, a, a concern that, that people have. And um, so a lot of these things 
that a lot of the, the things you should be doing to uh, ensure your safety may be counterintuitive because if you ask a new person, uh, they're going to be terrified of cars. Uh, so they're going to want to do whatever they can to stay out of the way of cars. Um, and that is not necessarily the safest thing to be doing. Um, in fact, it's not usually the safest thing to be doing. You don't want to bike as if you're invisible uh, because then you're, you're not going to be seen and, uh, and you need to be seen so that uh, drivers know to uh, to move over and not hit you and uh, you know not right hook you and uh, you you know get doored and things like that. So um, so a lot of this is counterintuitive and I think you're going to learn a lot. Uh, some of you may know all this already, but I think uh, I think it's very informative um, and you may even learn something uh, a thing or two. Um, probably we'll have Carrie back on the show in the future to uh, talk more about this and uh, sort of expand on other topics related to bike safety, but, um, definitely want to hear your feedback on, on this interview and, uh, you know, and as we'll talk about after the interview, there are still a lot of problems out on the streets. So uh, we'll talk about some news when, uh, when that concludes. So I'm going to play the interview and, uh, after, after we uh, take a quick break and, uh, then we will, uh, yeah, then you get to hear it. Okay. I'm going to shut up. I'm joined today by Kerry Caffrey, who is a cycling instructor and the editor of Commute Orlando, a blog about cycling in Orlando, Florida. Um, she's the co-founder of Cycling Savvy, which is a cycling safety education group, which has grown nationally. And she's also a board member of the Florida Bicycle Association and is developing a bicycle education curriculum. Uh, Kerry, thank you for joining me. Hi, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Um, one correction, I'm actually not a board member. I'm an advisory board member. Advisory board. I'm <laughs> sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I apologize. Um, so um, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, I'm really, really excited to have you because I think, and uh, some of my listeners have, have mentioned that there's often in, uh, in, in the world of bicycle advocacy, there is a lot of emphasis on trying to get people on bikes and uh, grow the numbers of bicyclists. And, and that's all great. Um, but there's often a lot of things left out, specifically um, how to how to bike safely and how to design safe streets and facilities. Um, so, wondering if maybe maybe you could start off by talking about um, why why you started up Cycling Savvy and um, you know what are some of the issues in in terms of uh, bike safety in in America specifically. Sure, um, I started um, in education actually pre-cycling savvy uh, by commuting and having a lot of the same problems that most people have with conflicts and close calls and people passing me too close and people cutting me off. And through my frustration with that, I went out looking for answers and I ended up finding um, that the answers that worked best for me was to modify my behavior and change some things that I was doing in my riding. And, of course, like everybody, I was kind of doubtful that moving further left into the lane, for example, either between intersections and and certainly on approach to intersections, would 
would change things that much. But what I found was that when I tried it, it changed things dramatically. And, um, and so I, I started looking around and realizing that people just weren't getting this information. They weren't, they weren't getting the information they needed to drive defensively and take care of themselves and really participate in their own safety. And so I started searching for education programs. I found the leagues program. I got certified to teach it, but I, um, I really felt that it didn't go far enough to giving people the skills that they needed to operate in our cities. We have our cities as they get bigger and bigger, we have more and more challenging road features introduced and people in order to use a bike for transportation, they really need to understand how to get through an interchange because usually it's that highway that bifurcates their city. And going through an interchange on a major road sometimes is the only way to get from one side of that highway to the other. And so what we did, Mike and I, was to construct an education program that could take a person from the very basic balance stopping and starting and looking over their shoulder all the way through to understanding how to read an interchange and put themselves in the position where they're going to have the least amount of conflict, be the most visible, and be successfully able to go through pretty much anything. We're giving them um, kind of the Rosetta Stone of how to figure out the environment they have to operate in. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I like that you talk about um, how the, the fear of cycling is in traffic is uh, the greatest barrier to bicycle transportation. Um, and I know, and like you said, you know, for a lot of people, it's just a lot of this stuff is counterintuitive. It's like, oh, if I, you know, if I move further to the left, I'm more likely to get hit from behind and, you know, things like that. And, um, how do you sort of, sort of overcome these, these, um, sort of things that people have, have ingrained in them and, and also just, just general fear of, of, uh, being around motor vehicles? That's a great question because that's the question that, um, that to, to date, um, most of these programs weren't addressing because they were trying to te- tell people, well, the statistics say that, and look at this pie chart. But but that fear doesn't come from the same side of the brain as the pie chart is going to reach. The fear comes from a much deeper and more, more emotional place. And so um, you really have to guide people through a process. Um, and we do, we constructed our course, we did a lot of research into this and studied um, people like um, uh, psychologists like Bandura who had, who had helped people overcome phobias. Um, and we, we worked through a process of bringing people along with um, more right-brained and visual ways of thinking. We do a lot of um vicarious modeling and then at the end we don't just leave them with a classroom session we take them out on the road and give them the firsthand experience with it and experiential learning is incredibly important because there is nothing I can tell you if you are afraid there is nothing I can tell you but I can show you and when you experience it you're gonna you're gonna get it on a completely different level yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's that's really important. Um, and then they learn that it, it can it can be much more enjoyable and not quite as as bad as they as they may imagine. Um, but what does I mean? What does it mean really to to you know drive your bike safely and, and defensively? You know, you, t- you talk about that, and um, I'm not sure a lot of people really understand uh, what what that means. Yeah. I, I I think. You know, when you when you say the word drive, drive is, is really important because you have to think of yourself 
as being a driver. And you have to act like that. You have to act as though you are a driver of a vehicle. You're just a driver of a slow vehicle. The other thing is you're a driver of a narrow vehicle. And and this is really important because a narrow a narrow vehicle like a bicycle or a motorcycle has has an additional concern in that they have to manage their lane space to keep um, other vehicles out of it. Uh, and and so what happens with um, with people is when they think of themselves as a bicyclist or an edge creature, you know, and they're they're sort of trying to stay out of the way because they're slow. They're inviting people to invade their their space, basically, and and so you have to really think of yourself as a legitimate driver because being slow is there's a stigma to it in our high fast paced world, but but being slow does not mean you have less right to your lane than anyone else because the foundational principle of the rules of the road are first come first served. If if you're there, no matter what you're driving, if you're first, it's your space. Now we definitely try to help people if we if we're on a two lane road in a tight situation with a lot of traffic. You know, I have a tendency to, to either pull over or, or try to do something to help people pass me if they can't just naturally pass me. But but in general, um, understanding that you're a driver first is really important. And then this translates further into when you when you come into an intimidating situation, putting yourself in the position where the driver of a car would be, because again, you're a narrow vehicle and you could move anywhere in that lane. But if you put yourself in that position as you're approaching an intersection or an interchange and you line yourself up with where the driver of a motor vehicle would be, you're going to have the best sight lines and um the best visibility to other drivers who are approaching from other sides of an intersection because that's really where they're looking. And and so those are those are kind of the fundamental points of, of driving defensively is really driving. Mm-hmm. And you have a great on on um on the website you have a great uh lane control animation which uh could encourage people to check out and unfortunately can't get it into an audio podcast in in a way that makes sense but <laughs> Um, you know, you have a great lane control animation, which basically shows you that how to prevent the most common crashes like dooring and being buzzed or being hooked, crossed, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and one thing um, you talked about is um, in the in the sense of, of talking about uh, drivers passing too closely, and you know, sort of why you have to control that lane. Um, you had some thoughts on the, the three foot passing rules that are being legislated in, in a lot of places. Um, maybe you want to talk about that real quick. Uh, passing distances. Sure, sure. Um, the 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 problem with legislating a, a passing distance as opposed to a passing behavior is um, that most people don't really know how far the right side of their car is from something outside of it. It sit on the left side of the car. Some people don't even know where the right side of their car is, <laughs> uh, let alone you know. A, a fixed distance from something outside of it. So it's, I think it's a much better strategy to legislate a passing behavior, which is change lanes. Because if you're, if you're going to move over and change lanes into another lane, then you're not going to be anywhere close to, to the bicyclist. Um, and the, the other thing about passing distances that bothers me a little bit is, 
is that I've seen them be used by police officers to say, oh, well, yes, you can ride at the edge of that 12-foot lane because motorists are required to give you three feet. Now, never mind that they can't give you three feet without leaving the lane, um, but, but you know, somehow now um, you, you don't have to drive defensively. You can just stay there on the edge and rely on people that, whose skills are completely unknown to you. <laughs> to do the right thing and move over. And I, and I don't think that's a very um, good precedent to set. I think that really what we need to do is we need to, to encourage people to make the right decision by using enough lane that they realize they can't stay in the lane, number one. And, and number two, if we're going to approach this from a legislative point of view, then we should have exactly the same um, right and, and drivers should have the same obligation toward us as they have toward motorcyclists, which in the UVC and in most states, um, except for California, as far as I know, uh, motorists are required, all drivers are required to make a complete lane change to pass a motorcyclist. You're not allowed to invade a motorcyclist lane at all. Well, a motorcyclist is on a much more robust vehicle <laughs> than, than I am on my bike. And they're and and I'm being passed at higher speed differentials, so I should at the very least have the same protection as a motorcyclist. That's that's really interesting, and I've uh, I've often thought about some of the uh, parallels between driving a motorcycle and, and driving a bicycle in, in some of these environments. It's it's a lot of the things are sort of the same, um, and that's that's really interesting. And when you know when I ride my bike, I'm I'm always thinking about. You know how to make sure how to you know take enough of the lane as, as to, to make sure that, that nobody is passing too closely. And I'm you know in, in my advocacy, I've I've uh, had differences with with people who tend to advocate for wide lanes um, because I think that wide lanes just encourage really fast driving, and drivers will pass will still pass too close. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's pretty much impossible to get a lane that's wide enough. Uh, for a driver and a bicyclist to be in the same lane, especially when they're going at a fast speed, um, so I think, oh, it, yeah, and I think that can be the most intimidating when you have a really wide lane and really fast, you know, like a forty-five mile per hour speed limit or something, and you're, you know, trying to take the lane. I well, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. We have the only place that we have wide lanes around here are on our highways, um, the state highways, and. So they're, they're roads with 45, 50 mile an hour speed limits and the, and the lane is 14 feet. And that was just a, an absurd and arbitrary oh. number that they came up with as 14 feet being a shareable width lane. Well, yeah, it's shareable with Mini Coopers. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's not shareable with, with an eight and a half foot wide truck with mirrors that extend to 10 feet. Um, so, so the, yeah, I agree with you. I think the minimum shareable width is 16 feet. And and then even then, that puts you then in the position of having to move back and forth to protect yourself at intersections. So um, I we're on the same page. Mm-hmm. Oh, good, good. Um, yeah, speaking of, I mean, wide lanes. What, what about uh, large vehicles? I know, I know my experience with with buses is is generally good, especially in cities, because you know these are professional drivers who are are trained by public entities to, you know, to look for, you know, be alert for bicyclists and, and to pass in certain ways, you know, for the most part. Um, but it's not always the case, especially with trucks. Um, is there a, is there, is there special advice you give for dealing with large vehicles? Uh, the, the main thing I tell people about large vehicles is, is and the big mistake that people make with large vehicles is that if there's a large vehicle ahead of you that's stopped in traffic or moving slower than you, 
do not pass it on the right. I, I think that's the the way that bicyclists get themselves in the most trouble. I mean, there's there is obviously if you're on on the edge of the road um, hugging the white line, you are at risk for a large vehicle tagging you, especially a U-Haul or a, a landscape trailer or something that's being driven by a, a non-commercial driver. Hmm. But but the the biggest thing that I see people doing that, that really scares me is riding down the right side of a large vehicle toward an intersection. Because when when you are behind or beside a large vehicle, that driver cannot see you, especially when you're on their right. They, the driver can't see you at all. And so if, if, that, if that driver is planning to make a right turn and you get to the intersection at the same time as they get a green light and begin their turn, um, you not only are you in your blind spot, but you're in their turning radius and there's no way you can get out of it. So we, you know, we see people, um, I think there have been actually a number of them in your city, um, who get hit by turning trucks because they passed, they passed the truck on the right. Yeah. That's a, unfortunately, a, something that, that continues to happen. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's an education thing, I think, and, uh, you know, both sides, but especially, yeah, just, you know, that's, you don't want to be in a place where you can't be seen. It's just never a good idea. Um, you, you mentioned a minute ago, um, you were talking about, uh, you know, police having certain interpretations of, of the law and of what, you know, bike safety needs. And, you know, most of the time, uh, police don't actually, uh, know what, you know, just like most drivers don't seem to know what it's like to actually drive a bike. And I feel like if they did, their behavior would be different. Um, but it reminds me that you were mentioning uh, the other day that you were just um, testifying for a cyclist in court who was ticketed uh, for riding properly. Um, I don't know if you mm-hmm. want to if you want to comment on that, but also um, you know how how can how, how can people sort of um, I guess defend themselves or or head off this you know motorist intimidation or bias law enforcement? We'll start with law enforcement. Um, I have gone to court with uh, one student already. Um, the officer didn't show up, and so he automatically his ticket was dismissed. But that wasted his time. You know, he had to take a day off from work to go to court um, to defend a bogus ticket, and then the officer didn't even show up. Um, I'm going to court tomorrow, um, along with several of my colleagues, um, for for a case where a bicyclist was ticketed for not riding in a shoulder. Um, the the officer thought that shoulder was a bike lane and wanted him to ride in it, and he refused, and so she gave him the ticket. Um, so uh, I can let you know the outcome of that after tomorrow. Cool. And maybe, I was, and maybe you just want to just want to mention some of the, you know, the, I mean, the reason why you might not want to ride in a, a shoulder or a bike lane. Um, the, in, this, in this particular case, um, the shoulder area is far too narrow, and the um, road has a fair amount of truck traffic and it's a high speed. Um, as we were talking earlier about the, the, the lane width, you know, that you need in order to have a truck be far enough away from you. Um, it's less than 16 feet of, of width, um, between the two, the shoulder and the lane, number one. And, and number two, um, the stripe changes the dynamic because, if drivers in adjacent lanes are not expected to move over within their lanes to provide passing clearance to vehicles in other lanes. And so as soon as you introduce a stripe into the situation, you've now created the situation where, where 
there's no expectation to even move over. You're kind of irrelevant over there. And so that actually decreases the passing clearance in that same width. So um, it's a very uncomfortable place to ride. It's very, it's too narrow. Um, the, the high speed traffic is way too close. And, um, and then there's, there's driveways and intersections that you have to contend with. And then there's glass and debris and other things that you have to contend with. Um, so you're either going in and out of the shoulder or you're hitting the brakes constantly, um, or, and, and you're getting, um, Passed way way closer than you would if you were controlling the lane. Yeah, that's uh, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, and in terms of um, just dealing with uh, with, I mean, is there? I guess uh, educating police through through organized programs is sort of probably our best hope. Um, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Uh, you really have to educate them internally. They don't um, they don't take outside information well. It has to come from inside and top down. And so the strategy um, really needs to be at the state local, the state level, or the agency level if you can. But ideally, if you can if you can in- implement it at the state level and then affect all the local agencies. But it has to be top down. And and. They, because you can't just go in, like I can't go in there to the department and say, hey, I want to teach you guys about the bike laws and bicycle safety and, and defensive driving for bicyclists because I'm not a police officer. They're not going to listen to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. Um, so, yeah, I want to uh, shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about um, uh, an article that you just posted um, about the, the stop sign reduction project. And uh, basically, we're we're just making the case that there are, um, you know, you, you were talking about a, I think a particular trail, a bike trail in, in Florida, um, where there were stop signs at like every cross street and like, and, like minor driveways and everything. And um, it sort of gets at this this idea of one one thing that I that I talk about often is you know you see these these walk bikes across road signs and stuff. Um, it just kind of treats bikes like idiots. And um, if if all bike drivers were idiots, I mean, there would be people dying left and right um, because of the the way the, the street conditions are and um, so, so I don't know, maybe you want, you want to talk about, um, sort of the, um, I guess it's the, the overuse of stop signs where, where you say they, where they're not appropriate increases the propensity to ignore them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, this is, this is a known fact and, and it's actually, um, it's in official guidance for, for stop sign use for streets is, you know, don't use stop signs as, as speed control or traffic calming, um, they, they they should be used only where they're needed to assign road right of way because where when you overuse them people begin to ignore them it, it breeds contempt for the device and I think those might even be the exact words <laughs> in the guidance um, and and so this is a well known fact and it it's it's not getting through on any level I mean when they're overusing stop signs in residential neighborhoods as well um, but. But for for the trails, the I, I'm not sure what this is. It's some liability thing. They're not even following the basic warrants that they would for a street. They're just automatically putting up a stop sign. It's like liability, cover your ass. I'm going to put up a um, stop sign here and um, make the trail traffic stop. And then if somebody gets hit, then I, you know we we don't have any liability because we had a, a stop sign there. But the problem is that that we have trails that are crossing one in the photo from the post 
is a diagonal trail that cuts through a grid. And so it has even more stop signs than it would if it went straight through the grid. And, and so you end up with a stop sign every two, three, four hundred feet. Well, you know, even I am not going to stop at a stop sign that often, and I'm pretty law <laughs> abiding. You know, I personally, I, I avoid that section of road, and actually, um, there's, a, there's a parallel street that goes at the same diagonal and then intersects the trail again. And so I use the street because the street has no stop signs on it. Mm-hmm. That shows but, the... But that kind of defeats the purpose of the trail. Yeah, and it shows the, the bias inherent in, in just, the, you know, the idea of like, well, here's a bike trail. we got to put a whole bunch of stop signs because people don't know what they're doing. And, and then, you know, here's the street right next to it and uh, everything is fine, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it is, it's just, there's a, there's a bias and and I and I don't want want to you know cast aspersions on well-meaning people, but I, but there is there is a bias that people aren't even aware of that the bicycle isn't a real vehicle. You know, it's like it's this toy thing, um, and and so it's it's concept of operation. You know, it's the concept of operation for bicycle drivers just isn't there. You know, a lot of and I see this a lot in infrastructure. A lot of the tra- another part of this trail project is termination of the trails. We have trails that terminate into a sidewalk with no curb cut out onto the street. <laughs> like, you know, I use these trails for transportation, and they're usually, uh, I'll use a segment of trail to connect, you know, from one segment of streets to another because the trail isn't going to go to every destination. I would really like that trail to connect to the street and not dump me onto the sidewalk where now I have to go find a curb cut. Mm-hmm. Right, right. That's that's a lot of, you know, bikes and pedestrians are often mixed together and, and sort of, uh, you know, we're actually different yeah. Um, and, and another thing is that comes up with this is that, um, you know, bikes are often, like, like you mentioned, that bikes are not, not treated equitably in, in the planning and design. Um, and I think that a lot of this, this sort of stuff leads to the idea that, uh, you know, bikes are, are supposed to follow traffic laws, they're supposed to be, you know, a vehicle. Um, but the way that traffic control devices and just the, this general street design just um, is, is made sort of just often doesn't make sense or at least is kind of unfair to bike users. And I think that sort of, um, it goes hand in hand with, with the idea that, you know, bikes always, you know, don't tend not to follow, uh, stop signs and and signals. Yeah. I think that there's, I mean, certainly the, the stop sign on the trail issue, um, I'm, I'm totally comfortable blaming lack of compliance, uh, on, on that. Um, I think there's also lack of compliance for the fact that, you know, the same, the same, um, pervasive belief that leads designers to not consider bicycles as vehicles also leads bicyclists to not consider bicycles as vehicles. It's a cultural problem. So there are a lot of bicyclists out there that, that don't stop at stop signs and don't stop at red lights because they think they're different. And I, and I, and not even because they're being jerks. I mean, I have seen people that really should have known better. I <laughs> just didn't realize they were supposed to stop at stop signs and, and stoplights because they don't, think of themselves as, as vehicle drivers. But but to the to your point of road design, this is really um this is a big deal. We have gotten to the point and certainly in my sprawling metro, where we're designing surface streets like freeways. We've got merges and diverges and you know all these ramp lanes and continuous right turn lanes and and um these these ridiculous um high speed features on 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 roads that sometimes are the only option to get from point A to point B. And so 
they're they're designing bicyclists reasonably designing bicyclists out of the equation. Now I can ride through any kind of interchange feature you want to give me. That doesn't mean I want to. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I can teach anybody to do it, but but that's really not the answer. You know, this has to stop. You know, these these major ridiculous interchanges and weave lanes and things um, on the only road into town um, are just not helpful. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously, from a from a pedestrian transit perspective, as well, you know, that just kind of ruins the ruins the city and just you know it uh, divides neighborhoods and just makes places unattractive. Um, mm-hmm. And what are what are um, what are your thoughts on on how you know how we should be designing streets? Uh, you know, do you have any? I know it's a big topic, but if you have any specific things you want to talk about, yeah. well, I think I think my my big word is going to be context. Um, I think that that. We for any street design, you have to consider context, um, and and you have to consider all users. Um, I think that that the biggest asset we could possibly have is to design for lower speeds in our urban areas. Um, you know, it it's, it doesn't make sense to have forty mile an hour roads and even thirty mile an hour roads in some of the the urban areas where there's so much stopping and starting and traffic entering and leaving the roadway. Um, and residential streets should be, should be way lower too. I mean, there's residential collectors that are 30 miles an hour and that's, you know, they don't need to be that high. Um, so I think that's one thing is, is bringing speeds down would make a huge difference for, for safety all around, you know, for pedestrians, probably more than anybody. Um, and then, and then uh, you really just have to understand context when it comes to, to street design. There's a lot of there's a lot of talk about complete streets, and um, my idea of what a, a complete street is is a lot different from what a lot of proponents of complete streets' idea of what a complete street is. I don't think it makes a street complete to put in a door zone bike lane um, where where I once had a full travel lane to use. Um, so I think that we need to rethink some of those concepts. Um, bringing speeds down is more important than shoving bicyclists off to the side because, you know, when you think about it, um, a bike lane is really not much more than a named shoulder. And so what a shoulder does is it increases the design speed of a road. So I think we need to think about if we want to decrease the design speed of roads, we need to do more integration and and maybe have you know more alternatives i like having i like having alternatives i like when i plan a route someplace i like to decide which route i want to take among four or five and it may depend on my route mood or what direction the wind is blowing so um that to me is more important than um individual you know street infrastructure that's influenced a lot by the comfort factor and, you know, like people want to be comfortable on bikes. They don't want to just, you know, just, just get on and go as fast as possible. You want to just, you know, have a nice ride. Yeah. Well, and, and people need to understand that, first of all, you don't have to go as fast as possible just because you're integrated. Um, I don't, I drive a, a cargo bike and I'm not fast. <laughs> I, I'm, my average speed is, is sometimes sub 10. So, um, and I, and I don't kill myself. I just I choose roads where my speed doesn't matter, and and so I my I use a mix of 
residential type roads because that's really I would prefer to ride through neighborhoods because I'm going to see people uh, out walking their dogs that I can say hi to. I find it more pleasant. It's more shady and shade is a big deal in Florida. And and so I'm going to use I'm going to use as much of the connected infrastructure of quiet streets as I possibly can. But when I get on, if I have to go onto a busier road, I'm usually going to choose the one, one that has more lanes so that it's easy for motorists to pass me. And then I'm, I'm not going fast. I don't need to, I'm, you know, they, they have another lane to use. So, so having those kind of choices um, makes a difference to me because sometimes if I wanted to go downtown and I, you know, about I wanted the most for route, for example, um, I might pick a route that was all um, collector arterial type roads. Or if I have more time and and I don't really want the noise of traffic, I would pick a route that was almost all residential streets, and it was usually a little bit longer. Matter wise, and that's what I do. But in in neither case did I ever ride faster. Mm-hmm. That's interesting and. Um... Cool. Um, trying to think if there's, I know we're uh, we're uh, rapidly running out of time, and uh, I want to want to let you go. Um, I was just curious. One um, one last thing. We hear a lot about uh, how to get more people on bikes. That's like a big thing. You know, a lot of people want to get more people on bikes, and you know, safety in numbers. And I believe in a lot of that. Um, is there, and especially when when you're when you're um, showing people to do things that that are counterintuitive to the idea that they have of biking, like you know, like controlling the lane and. Um, and that sort of stuff. And um, do you have any thoughts on on how we can get more people on bikes? Um, well, getting more people on bikes isn't my primary focus, but I I do a lot to encourage cycling um, with group rides and um, and that sort of thing. I think that that there's a lot of organic encouragement that can be done through group rides, through bike valets, you know, through just saying, hey, you know, just ride your bike. I think we do a, a little too much of, oh, we need to build something special for you so you can ride your bike, which makes the person go, oh, well, I can't ride my bike until you build that special thing for me. Um, I, 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 li- I really like to focus on things like um, wayfinding maps to show people, like, all the streets that they can use that have no traffic at all on them. Because most people that live in the urban core can reach most destinations without really having to interact with traffic very much at all. And, and so I think that there's, you know, it it doesn't have to be, Oh, before you start riding your bike, you have to learn how to control the lane on a busy road because you don't. There's, there's so many places that you can ride. In fact, in fact, the, the census data shows us in Orlando that the largest growth in transportation bicycling has happened in in neighborhoods and parts of the city that don't have any bike infrastructure, but what they do have is um, a robust grid of streets that allows them to use um, no traffic, low traffic streets to get to all of the, you know, nearby destinations. Cool. And I think that's a, it's a great place to leave it. Um, unless you have anything else to add. Uh, Thank you for thank you so much for for doing this, and this has been a really informative conversation. And uh, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have to consult with you in the future. Sounds good. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Carrie Caffrey for doing that interview. Um, that was a, a very informative uh, discussion, and uh, I learned a lot, and uh, I'm sure you did as well. 
And uh, if you have any thoughts, um, please please continue the discussion. Um, you can uh, go and visit uh, the site, criticaltransit.com, and uh, leave some comments on the uh, episode post, or you can email me, feedback at criticaltransit.com. And I'd encourage you to go check out Cycling Savvy at cyclingsavvy.org or uh, Carrie's other site, uh, commuteorlando.com. And uh, both of those sites you should definitely check out. And there's a lot of really useful information there, um, tips and tricks. And uh, I was just on cyclingsavvy.org uh, right now, actually, and I see there's uh, there's this one diagram showing a strategic setup for a left turn across an eight-lane Bonster Strode, um, among other things. So, uh, yeah, definitely check this, check that out. Uh, the various animations here showing you uh, how to deal with complicated situations or even just, uh, just regular everyday situations. So, uh, I encourage you to check that out. That's at cyclingsavvy.org and commuteorlando.com. take a break and when we come back we're going to be talking about a bunch of bike related items in the news and also a little bit of listener feedback uh, this is the Arcade Fire with Black Mirror Alright, so we got some news today, and uh, first off, we're going to start off with this op-ed in the New York Times uh, by Daniel Duane on November 9th. It's called, Is It Okay to Kill Cyclists? And uh, this basically is a, is a summary of the, the fact that when drivers hit and, and or kill cyclists, they hardly ever get a significant penalty. Uh, most of the time, if, if the cops you know the cops show up and they're like well okay you know it wasn't uh, you know he wasn't drunk and he didn't leave the scene so everything's okay he must not have meant it it's all good you know even if uh, it was reckless driving inappropriate turn lane change whatever they just go oh well you know okay accidents happen and uh, so that's all that's all well and good uh, you know i appreciate uh, that getting some publicity um, and uh, there's a great quote from leah shaham the executive director of the san francisco bicycle coalition uh, she says, we do not know of a single case of a cyclist fatality in which the driver was prosecuted, except for DUI or hit and run. Um, so there you have it right there. It's a great summary there. And uh, there's an attorney here who's quoted talking about how jurors identify with drivers. And so uh, and so do police, because police spend most of their lives in cars. So they have what we call the windshield perspective. Um, you know, when you see everything from behind cars. 
Um, and so they, uh, yeah, so they don't want to, there's this, there's this idea, I have trouble with this idea that this, uh, um, Portland attorney, Ray Thomas has, has to offer, which is that, uh, you know, convictions carry life destroying penalties, uh, up to six years in prison, which by the way, if you kill somebody, you get six years in prison, eh, something wrong there. Um, and so he's, Mr. Thomas points out, jurors just think, well, I can make the same mistake so they don't convict. Um, and basically the idea that, that they don't feel, that they feel like the penalty is too harsh. I remember we had this uh, we had this going on in one of the communities in Boston. I think it was Brookline, where they, they passed a, an anti-dooring ordinance, which, by the way, you don't need an anti-dooring or, ordinance. It's, it's illegal to open your door without checking for traffic and uh, making sure it's safe. Uh, you don't need a separate ordinance for, for bicycles. But um, So they made one, and uh, you know the fine was $100. Which, by the way, it's like the only time that's ever going to get enforced is if somebody is actually doored and injured. Uh, and then they're, instead of actually charging the driver with uh, the expenses of, you know, the medical expenses and all that, they're just going to say, well, it's a $100 ticket. Um, so I have problems with that. But I remember in that situation, the, the police saying that they weren't going to give those tickets because they thought it was too much money and they didn't want to do that to drivers. And so it was just, and then the bike advocates are like, well, maybe we should make it less so that they actually give tickets. And it's just like, come on, like, that's not the problem. Um, and that shows, yeah, you, the cops spend most of their lives in cars. So that's where their, uh, you know, where their sympathies lie, according, according to the, the article, which is, which I think is right. And so, you know, this goes on with, with many examples. I don't need to read all, all the examples, but, um, you know, we, so this is all well and good. You know, talk, the article talks about how this is, this is, you know, the system's not fair and, and all that. Um, and then he goes, uh, so somehow he, he, all of a sudden he gets to the point where he's like, he's like, my own view is that everybody's a little right. And that we're at a scary cultural crossroads on the whole car bike thing. What? I mean, you just talked about how drivers are recklessly killing bike bicyclists for, for no, you know, uh, with no penalty, uh, no disincentive, no, no deterrent. And then you just, you say, everybody's a little right. What the fuck is wrong with you here? Um, and this is like, you know, it's not like drivers, it's not like drivers and bikes are a little right. It's, it's this, I, I bike snob NYC the, the next day, who I love, um, and I have to get to come on the show, um, had a great, uh, great quote, um, on that. And he says, uh, yeah, where is it? Um, so everybody's a little right. He says, uh, you should be starting to be get a little uncomfortable at this point. Drivers are a little right to be furious at cyclists for clogging roads. And he goes on and say how that's like pretty much bullshit. Like drivers don't delay motorists uh, by any significant appreciable delay, except for like a critical mass ride or, or something like that. Um, so he, you know, he goes all that. And, it's, uh, and then he's like, meanwhile, all it takes is a fender bender between two drivers to snarl traffic for hours. Delays, police, ambulances, insurance claims, all because one asshole put a tiny dent in some other asshole's Hyundai. Can you imagine if they closed Fifth Avenue for half the day because a couple of pedestrians brushed shoulders and one of them spilled Starbucks on his tie? It's really no different. Uh, that's great. I love Bike Snob. It's uh, bikesnobnyc.blogspot.com. I'll put a link to that, too. That's, that's awesome. And, uh, and you know, and then, yeah, and then he, he goes on with some more uh, pro bike stuff. And then, and then, then he, pulls, uh, he pulls this one out of here. 
He goes, nor does it help that many cyclists do ignore traffic laws. Every time I drive my car through San Francisco, I see cyclists running stop signs like immortal entitled fools. So I understand the impulse to see cyclists as recreational risk takers who deserve their fate. And, uh, well, never mind the drivers disobey most laws. I've talked about this ad nauseum. Um, but Bike Snob says, I'm so sick of this crap where people can't say anything pro-bike in a mainstream publication without first beating the crap out of cyclists. Uh, yeah. You just described watching an SUV run into a cyclist. What kind of insensitive putz could possibly think anybody deserves that or understand anybody who does? And, and in my words, uh, because they ran a stop sign. When bikes run stop signs, that's not a problem. I mean, it doesn't, you know, we're talking about drivers who recklessly plow into cyclists and, and, you know, injure them. This is, uh, you know, this is very different than just like running a stop. So you got to wait a couple seconds, big deal. Um, and I've talked about this before, you know, I don't endorse just like blindly just, just going and not paying attention. Like the asshole driver who I had last night who almost hit me, he was driving, you know, like 30 miles an hour with no headlights and, you know, just blowing by stop signs and, and uh, nearly hit me. Um, cause I didn't have a stop sign he did. Uh, but I was paying attention because when you're on a bike, you have to be paying attention. You have to be looking for these things because you know that, that other drivers don't care about you and you know, you got to pay attention and, and, uh, you know, and, and be ready for, for all the, the unexpected. So, and then he goes on to talk about how studies performed in at least three states, probably others, suggest that drivers are at fault in more than half of all cycling fatalities. Um, it's probably way higher, but, um, we, you know, yeah, I mean, it's not like, like, yes, okay, cyclists don't, don't usually wait at red lights and stop signs, but, you know, they're not usually causing crashes. Um, you know, if you, if you parse out the numbers and you'll see that, you'll see that most cycling crashes don't involve cars at all. Uh, most cycling crashes are, you know, potholes or, uh, you know, pedestrian or, um, you know, just slid on ice or, or something like that, um. You know, and then when you, but when you look at, you know, bike car collisions, you'll see that um, it, it's, you know, very, very few are, are the fault of, of the bicyclist. And um, and if you want to take it a step further, you could you could look at it the way that we look at uh, bus driver collisions, uh, the way that transit agencies uh, hold bus drivers to account for collisions. That that even if you know it may technically be the car driver's fault. It's the, the bus driver is still held to a standard of, of, you know, could the bus driver have prevented the collision? Um, you know, is there something that should the bus driver have been prepared for, for example, for the, the you know, the car to, to cut out in front of the bus or something like that? Um, and so, you know, you could hold cars to that standard, too. Um, that's kind of the standard that's, that's sort of similar to the standard that's held in, in the Netherlands where uh, drivers are considered to be at fault unless uh, significant evidence is prevented to the contrary. And, uh, and that's kind of the way it should be because the, the bicyclist has a lot more to, to lose. Um, you know, you're literally talking uh, life and death here, whereas, um, you know, for car drivers, you're talking about uh, an insurance claim. So anyway, uh, you know, he talks about this, how, how this is... Um, you know, it's usually the driver's fault, and then he, and there's something undeniably screwy about a justice system that makes it de facto legal to kill people, even when it is clearly your fault. As long as you're driving a car and the victim is on a bike, and you're not obviously drunk and don't flee the scene. Okay, so all good there. You know, this is uh, this is what I was talking about. This is what the, ostensibly the point of the article. Um, and but guess what he guess what he comes to in the end? Guess his conclusion. Yep. You guessed it. 
So here's my proposal. Every time you get on a bike from this moment forward, obey the letter of the law in every traffic exchange everywhere to help drivers and police officers view cyclists as predictable users of the road who deserve respect. You know what I have to say to that? Go fuck yourself. And Bike Snob said the same thing. He's like, you know what? Fuck that. The writer makes some good and sensible observations in this piece, but this little proposal obviates every single one of them. It's impossible, and in fact downright stupid, to obey the letter of the law on your bicycle when you find yourself in a situation where the streets and the laws are designed specifically for cars, which describes most of the United States. Moreover, it's gone way, way past the point where a cyclist should need to prove to the very people who are fucking us, that's drivers and police officers, that we deserve respect. We deserve respect for being human, and it ends there. Yet we're supposed to be good little Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, even when it's more dangerous for us to do so, to prove we're not deserving of not being killed. To prove we're deserving of not being killed. That's just stupid and insulting. Um, and and I agree. I'm glad. I'm glad that somebody uh, you know that that bike snob is is joining the. Well, he's always been there. Um, I'm glad that there's, there's at least several of us that are that are saying you know that the problem doesn't have anything to do with drivers needing to with uh, bicyclists needing to earn respect. Uh, how come nobody holds drivers to account and uh, you know demands that drivers need to earn respect? They, okay, you know drivers don't follow the. Uh, you know, they're the right turn on red. They don't yield to pedestrians and crosswalks, and they don't follow speed limits and turn signals and all these other things. Like, how come we don't? You know, they they still deserve respect. Um, you know, if a car, uh, if if two cars hit each other, it's like, well, they're both a little at fault. Um, and I love this quote from uh, the bike snob. He says, "This abed reads like a homophobe defending gay marriage, but saying that homosexuals should act less faggy in order to earn the respect of straight people." Oh yeah, this is. Uh, <laughs> I think that's a great quote because I think it talks about how you know it's you're just uh, it's just victim blaming here. Um, you're not you're not actually addressing the problem. You're just uh, sort of saying, well, you know, the victim. Like if we were just like you know just invite less hatred, then everything would be okay. And no, that's not the that's, that's not the way it goes. And uh, yeah, so so Bikesnow makes another couple great points, and you should really check out this article. And uh, you. Uh, yeah, he says you don't get an A for effort when you're uh, when you're an adult. Um, so yeah, and he goes on to talk about his approach to to biking, which is great. And uh, I shall uh, I shall post a link to this, and uh, and you will uh, you will enjoy the bike snob. He has a couple books that you should check out as well. So, uh, so go do that. Uh, bike snob nyc and I'll put a link up. Here's a uh, depressing, really, really depressing article for uh, um, that I came across a while ago, uh, a couple months ago, and I just, I guess, I just haven't gotten it on the podcast. I am not sure why. Um, this is in Chicago. A a cyclist was grabbed by a passenger of an SUV and dragged until she hit a parked car and crashed to the ground. Now, this is absolutely disgusting and uh the next no one is in custody i don't think any arrest was ever made and uh you know the police of course bungled the response as well like like uh, the last hit and run in chicago that was widely publicized that i know about um because they had uh you know they weren't being very proactive in getting surveillance footage and other things so this is very but this is very uh very disconcerting and uh, 
Yeah, a car pulled up really close next to me. It's a big maroon purple Tahoe, uh, which I guess is the name of an SUV. And it was pushing me against the parked cars, and I couldn't do anything. I couldn't brake or swerve. I was pinned between this moving car and this other car. And uh, there's pictures here of bruises and stuff. And, uh, you know, this is this is disgusting. And the next person who tells me that bikes have to follow traffic laws to earn the respect of drivers can go fuck yourself. Uh, yes. Because I'm so sick of hearing this crap. We, you know, spend all this time and energy on this little these little things you know we put in these bike lanes we put in speed bumps you know we get these crosswalks and stuff that drivers don't respect anyway and it's like you know all this stuff is because we we don't want to you know we're just afraid of just saying like look this is this is a problem and um you know and, and the system is is totally unfair it's totally dangerous and the drivers that are out there don't understand what it's like to be in a bicycle where you got these five-ton death machines flying around and being very reckless. It'd be one thing if they were not reckless, if everybody was careful and paying attention, and, uh, and you could see that. But it's just, it's just the whole system is, is completely biased. So, you know, if you ever say to me that bikes need to follow the traffic laws to get respect from drivers, well... That's, I've already said what I had to say about that. Um, yeah. I'm closing that. I'm just tired of seeing that article in my browser. That's going away. Um, here is a positive news. The An ingenious bicycle-powered treehouse elevator lifts a rider 30 feet in seconds. Okay, so it's not a... I, I should say it's positive news that really affects anybody else, but it's just kind of super cool. Um, I'll put a link to this, and this guy... Uh, built a he built a big tree house uh, 30 feet up and he uh, he's just riding he basically just attached it to a pulley and so he just gets on his bike and he just starts pedaling and he goes up 30 feet and then uh, you know same to go back down uh, it's really really cool um, I'll put a link to that so you can you can watch that and enjoy that one of my listeners from Boston wrote in with a link to a site called Otno. A-U-T-N-O dot com, which is a uh, place to find apartments that are close to transit. Um, so that's exciting um, because, as we know, a lot of uh, mapping tools and uh, related online search things, uh, if, if you look up directions to anywhere, like pretty much everything is just car-oriented. And so it's nice to see something that's that's catering to transit. Uh, and, and they also have walking and biking features. I haven't tested all these out, and the infrastructure, the um, you know, the design of the site and everything seems a little clunky and a little difficult to figure out. But uh, but check it out, autno.com, and uh, you know, let me know uh, what you think. Um, it sounds like a like a cool thing, uh, right, almost kind of right up there with walkscore.com. Although walkscore is uh, is much more. Uh, detailed and I guess probably more useful, but uh, but yeah, we should, we'll see how these things these develop over the years. I think we're going to see more of these, so that's exciting. Sad news from here in Minneapolis: um, the first, it, I think, this is the first bike sharing system uh, in in North America that has closed for the winter. And so, um, yeah, many of these bike share systems close for the winter. And if you ask them why, they give you uh, a wide range of excuses, uh, ranging from uh, it's too cold, nobody uses it, to uh, the salt damages the bikes, to uh, we don't want to clear the stations of snow, 
to uh, a number of other things too um, I, that I've heard. Um, nobody really knows why uh, it can't be done. Uh, I feel like if Montreal does it all year round, then uh, there's not really any excuse for anywhere else. But uh, in any case, the system in Minneapolis has closed down for the season. And uh, that's kind of sad news. I should note that I have worked for Nice Ride this year, uh, moving bikes around and fixing bikes and doing other miscellaneous things. And so uh, I uh, obviously I don't speak for Nice Ride, um, but I think it's a cool system, uh, and I like I love bike sharing. And so uh, I'm always sad to see things go. But uh, I know that this will uh, will return in April, and uh, I probably will as well. So uh, and others will follow soon. I know Madison's going to follow soon. Uh, I'm not sure if Denver's going to be year-round this year. I know Boulder was year-round last year and will be year-round this year. And, uh, and by the way, Boulder's bike share system escaped with very minimal damage from the uh, the floods that happened uh, a few months ago. So that's uh, that's exciting. And, uh, yeah, so more of that will be coming. Meanwhile, uh, San Francisco is set to roll out a uh, big increase to their bike share program in January or February. Right now they have a really small system. It's just kind of downtown core stations, and it's, it's pretty small. Um, but it's going to grow to be uh, eventually citywide. The New York City bike program is is just, like, doing phenomenally well, um, and that's exciting. And uh, so it's a program in Chicago. It's uh, exceeding all expectations, and that's that's also very, very exciting. I'm looking forward to getting down to Chicago soon to try it out. And I use Nice Ride quite a bit, um, and well, obviously now I'm not really using it anymore. Um, as an employee, I have the privilege of going and uh, going to the warehouse and getting a bike and riding it whenever I want to take a joyride. Um, I actually think that the bikes that are the, the Pixie bikes that are used in many of these bike shares in Chicago, New York, uh, Washington D.C., Boston, uh, and many of the bigger cities, I, I think uh, I actually love the bikes. I think they're really uh, they're really great to ride around the city. And uh, it would be nice if they uh, could be a little faster, but you really don't need that. And uh, I, I just love taking it to, you know, on days when it's not so convenient to have my own bike, um, I can get a bike when I need it. And uh, that's really nice. So, um, and the winter is kind of when that really becomes useful because there are many days that uh, you don't really want to have your own bike. Um, you know, you want to be taking the bus or the, or the train because, uh, you know, the conditions are not so great for biking, uh, maybe snow and ice, whatever. But you might find uh, one trip that, uh, you know, is in the middle of the day, you know, to go a mile or something is really annoying to do by bus, uh, and you'd like to have a bike to do that. Or, uh, or you know, you think it's going to be really bad weather, and it turns out not so bad and good for biking. So um, it's not to say that you can't bike in bad weather, and we're going to have an episode coming up on winter biking so and also rain biking. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. Um, but, yeah, it's a sad day to see this, this close, and, um, and I look forward to it uh, coming back. And the systems that have launched in Chicago, uh, the Divi system, as well as the City Bike system in New York, are going to go all winter. Uh, Washington, D.C. already goes all winter, but they don't get a ton of snow. Um, Boulder has been going all winter. Um, last winter was their first winter, uh, so that's that's cool. And... You know, Montreal has been going all winter, so that's uh, that's exciting. And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic that maybe someday uh, all of these cities will have their bike share systems go all winter. Particularly, particularly Boston, I think, really is uh, is one that would uh, benefit from going all winter in uh, when it 
right now it does not, and I'm hopeful that that'll have start happening in the next couple of years. And I have a, an email that I wanted to get to here that I haven't, uh, I've had here for a while, and I don't think I ever mentioned this on the show. Um, but if I have, then please tell me. And by the way, if you if you wrote to me and I did not talk about your email on the show and or didn't write back to you, uh, please like just drop me a line and let me know because I am not the most organized person. So as the the person who wrote this email will attest. Uh, that, uh, this email was written on July 24th. So, uh, yeah. Um, what, what can I say? I have a lot going on and, uh, I don't get paid for this job. So, yeah. So John from Newtown, Pennsylvania, which is a suburb of Philadelphia, writes in, uh, I'm working away, I'm working my way through all of the podcasts and really enjoying them. Well, thank you. And, uh, hopefully you made it, uh, all the way through them by now, because it's been several months. Um, so, yeah, by the time you do that, then uh, I'll have a new episode. I live in an area that has undergone rapid suburbanization in the past few years, and I often have felt that I am the only one that sees something inherently wrong with the need to drive everywhere. Nothing is walkable, and our regional transit provider, SEPTA, simply can't provide service, given that everything is so decentralized. Uh, and then he asked if I could write uh, if I've ever been on SEPTA lines in Philadelphia, and the answer is yes, I have. Um... I like Philadelphia's transit network. It's very diverse, and it's great. It's a wonderful thing for a rail fan. Um, the subway surface lines could use an upgrade. They're pretty slow. Um, I generally like streetcars because they, uh, you know, when they have to compete with traffic, that's not great. Um, but the city has been making some upgrades, and uh, it's a really interesting system from a transit uh, transit fan perspective just because of the, the way that the transit system operates on the streets. You know, the way you have the subway surface lines and sometimes they're stopping, uh, just like a streetcar opening the door and you step down into the street and you cry, you you know, it's in the middle of the street and sometimes they have a platform or sometimes it's in a subway. And, um, then they have the, the two, uh, actual, you know, heavy rail, like proper subway lines, uh, the market Frankfurt L and then the, uh, broad street line and the broad street line has local and express, for half of it. Um, and then, uh, yeah, Market Frankfurt L is no express at all. And it's just a very interesting system. And, and so anyway, I'll talk about it some other time. But anyway, my my first thing I was going to say uh, I was say to John is like, you need to get the hell out of there. What are you doing in there? Uh, come on, man. Um, sounds like you're a big transit fan and you're, uh, you know, you're interested in walkable places and, uh, you're live. sounds like you're living in suburbia and you're having regrets. So I, I am sorry to hear that. Uh, that's not good. Um, but I wrote back and I wrote back to Jonathan and I was, I, I got this email. Um, I was just gonna say one other thing. Um, the, so he sends me a picture after I wrote back, he sent me a picture of the Newtown bypass, uh, around 7 PM, uh, in a weekday. Um, which, which is an arterial built a few years ago to speed cars around the outskirts of the old colonial town of Newtown. This highway is ugly and has only made the traffic worse, even though PennDOT, the DOT, widened it a few years back. The highway has no pedestrian crossings whatsoever and is way too dangerous for cyclists to use. So now, of course, there are studies to consider yet another road widening. And this at a time when SEPTA is woefully underfunded by the state government, uh, that being the transit agency, and is threatening service cuts and fare hikes. Uh, sorry for this rant, but I sort of feel like a lone voice in the wilderness out here. Well, thanks, John, for yeah, thanks for sending this picture. Um, this is basically just um, 
I don't see anything unique about this situation. This is just a picture of a bunch of cars stuck in traffic. And uh, perhaps you are taking this from your bicycle in that position. And if you are, then uh, good on you for taking the lane. Um, but you also don't have to be a martyr. You can go. You can go between the lanes of cars and go up to the front and like go and do your thing. Don't feel like you have to sit in between car traffic. Um, but it, maybe it's not your bike. I don't know. Anyway, so what I was going to say about this is that, um, yeah, aside from that, you need to get out of there. I have actually taken PennDOT to task before for uh, putting, uh, you know, anti-pedestrian stuff. They, they just basically just had no pedestrian signs um, at an intersection in uh, on a, you know, two-lane state highway where the signal they just had a bunch of no pedestrian signs, I guess, so they didn't have to put in crosswalks. Uh, that's not acceptable. And uh, so, yeah, they made this bypass, and they have no pedestrian crossings, and it's just, you know, you can't you can't bike on it. So the problem here is that this goes back to the idea of trying to build our way out of traffic congestion, right? We'll just widen the highway. We'll just build another one. We'll build a bypass. I remember when uh, my grandparents telling me this story about how um, they live in rural Pennsylvania in, uh, in basically north north of Philadelphia a while. Um, it's up, it's called the Pocono Mountains, and it's basically um, sort of, if you look at, if you're curious, if you look at a map, um, it's right where um, Interstate 80 crosses the border between New Jersey and Pennsylvania. Um, and it's, it's a really rural area. Um, but has become more built up over the years. So there are, a f- there are several two-lane highways kind of in different places around there, and then there's just, you know, people live in these these quote-unquote communities that are just, you know, you have to drive for miles to get on these winding country roads to get out there. And, um, you know, there's no, there's no, you can't even dream of like a bus service or, or biking anywhere, really. Um, people only bike for recreation over there. And so this, this community, I remember there was, uh, if for years and years and years, there was this flea market that attracted tons of people from New York, driving from New York. It was about two hours from New York City. Um, it attracted tons of people driving up there on the weekends. And uh, many people bought vacation homes up there because it's, it's cheap. It's the middle of nowhere. It's like, I want to live up there. Um, and it's a really long commute to New York. So a lot of people bought, bought vacation homes. And uh, and many people eventually like moved into those homes. And then they were commuting two hours each way to New York, which is just insane. And then, so, you know, it reminds me of, of that because at the time there, there was this flea market and, you know, traffic would just, would back up, you know, for miles on these two lane roads. And they were talking for years and years about building a bypass, um, you know, like a route that would just bypass this flea market and the flea market traffic, you know, for the people that live there and that don't want to go to the flea market. Okay, fine. Um, you know, it all sounded good to me like years and years ago when I was a kid. It's like, okay, when I was a kid, I thought that, you know, we just needed to like put a deck over all the arterial streets and, uh, you know, in my neighborhood that were clogged with traffic. I thought that was the solution, right? So like shows, shows what I, what you know, as a kid, but, and so uh, it reminds me of that because the, the eventually, they eventually built the bypass. Uh, but like a year or two before they built the bypass, the flea market moved like further up the road so that the road doesn't even, the bypass doesn't even bypass the flea market anymore. And it's just like, you know, these things is like, you don't, they don't solve the problem. So that this, but this bypass in the, you know, this in the Poconos here, it's uh, it's just empty. You know, it's the opposite of this thing in Newtown where it's just, 
it's just empty and it's just a big waste of space and waste of money. And, um, and you think about all the money you could spend it on. I mean, even just, even just forgetting, you know, bicycles for a minute. I mean, you know, the, the, the billions of dollars you spend on these things. I mean, you know, you like a billion dollars, like, you know, when people you could, you could feed for a billion dollars. I mean, just to, to think about, if you want to think about transportation, like, you know, how many bicycles you could buy for a billion dollars for people who, you know, live in these places with poor transit and have, you know, no way of getting around. Uh, you know, a bunch of bus service you can make for for a billion dollars. Yeah, I was I was uh, reading recently, and um, in conjunction with one of my posts that I was researching for a post on the light rail here in in Minnesota, and I found that Minneapolis, which is a, which is a large city, um, you know, it's not quite the level of Chicago, but it would be the next tier down. It'd be a, with with Denver. And uh, maybe Miami and similar cities is you know between Minneapolis and St. Paul there's seven hundred thousand people. So to provide all the bus service from, from Minneapolis and the entire Metro Transit budget is three hundred and ten million dollars per year. So just imagine what you can do in a in a rural area where you don't need a ton of service. Um, imagine what you can do for the kind of money that we're spending on these on these highways, um, and it's just. It's just disgusting, and it's you know, it's it's, it's going to start to change, but the question is like, will it be? Will it change soon enough? So uh, at the time I got this email from John in Newtown, I was actually in Denver. Uh, I was I was uh, spending a week and a half in Denver, uh, staying with a with a friend in suburbia, and uh, you know I I've been meaning to podcast about that, and, and I will. Uh, I promise it'll happen sometime along with all the other cities I visited. And so I was talking about how the place I was staying in suburbia, it's a, a suburb of, uh, of Denver called Thornton, Thornton. And uh, it's, it's really weird because unlike suburbia that I knew in like New Jersey and, you know, Long Island, places that I, that I knew growing up and in suburbs of Min- in Minnesota here too, um, in, in this place, in the suburbs of Denver, there were sidewalks in most places there were some bike paths, and there was bus service that I could use, and, uh, and it, I could actually ride the bike path like almost door to door from the uh, the place I was staying to uh, a parking ride lot where I could get bus service to the city. Um, and it was really strange. And, and, and this place was was right on the corner. It was like on the far edge of the bus service, like another another mile up north, and and uh, that was the end of the bus route. So. But it was it was really interesting because you know that's not typical of, of suburbia, and so of course the bus service up there was pretty empty until you got closer to the city or on the major arterial corridors, and then you had a lot of people going to work, and so um, it's it's very strange because it's a, it's a foreign environment, you know. It's uh it's not only is it a foreign environment to me, and I just so out of place, but it's really strange to know that many people see no problem with that, and. Uh, just like John is saying, you know, some of the bus service here is well used. Uh, it is true that there is a need for transit, but no real way to provide the efficient and effective service. So, you know, when you have these, these sprawled out suburbia, like you can't, you can't provide bus service in a way that's useful. Um, you know, in order to have a really effective bus service, you need something like, you know, a, like major streets that the bus can run down, you know, the most effective bus service is going to be in a, in a dense grid system where you have a bus that's running in just the length of a street, you know, for miles, well, several miles at least. 
and, uh, and and large numbers of people can walk to it within a, with a reasonable amount of effort. And uh, you know, and then you just get a lot of people, and everybody's going to have to walk a little bit to and from the bus route. But uh, it's it's convenient enough, and it just sort of you're basically just sort of serving everybody, getting everybody, you know, getting them basically there, and, and they have to walk a little bit. And when you talk about these suburban and rural places, uh, the way things are designed, it's like you need to get people door to door pretty much or like really close. Uh, but because of the street grid and uh, and just the low ridership in general, because most people living in these places want to drive cars anyway, it's just not it's just very, very difficult to try to to try to manage that. Um, so I looked at a map of Newtown and yeah, it's it's not really it's not really a way to connect these places that need to be connected with traditional transit, at least. Um, you can provide commuter trips maybe to, to, uh, Philadelphia or possibly Trenton or somewhere else in, uh, in rush hour, but that's not, uh, it's not really going to solve the, uh, the getting around buying groceries type trips. And, uh, you know, it's reason, it's probably reasonably easy to do errands by bike, but, um, you know, it's not going to be the most comfortable place to bike. The, the, the problem here is that you know, transit service in suburban and rural areas is typically designed to provide the basic mobility that people, for people who are essentially stuck there. You know, they're they're living, working, visiting family, but they they have to, you know, they have they need a means of getting around. They don't really want to be there, but they just it's just where that's where their job is or, or whatever. Um, and so the the kind of service because it's designed to provide that basic mobility, it's it assumes a very high cost. And, uh, you know, that, that can be, uh, it can be justifiable. Um, it's, I'm not saying that it's not just that it, it is very inefficient to run and it, it, you know, becomes difficult when you have, uh, you know, limited budgets and to be honest, like transit planners are really focusing on the issues that are going on in the city. Um, you know, you take an agency like SEPTA in Philadelphia, you know, they're, I mean, these these uh, services don't really get looked at. They're just kind of viewed as political routes, basically, and um, you know they're just out there running around suburbia. Uh, meanwhile, you know you get these forty foot buses running around suburbia. Meanwhile, uh, in the middle of the city, you have you know crowding and bunching and and you know other problems. You need more service, but you know you can't. You don't have it, and uh, and you can't take these buses that are running around suburbia because like you need to provide something and you know whatever. And no, but because they're, the planners are so focused on what's going on in the city, nobody is taking time to really look at, at the suburban services and see if there is a way to provide service more effectively. Um, look at things like demand response, flex routes, uh, shared taxi services, some other things that have been effective in suburban areas. You, there's no real, uh, there's, no, there's nobody that's really looking at that because you're so focused on, on other things. Uh, at least that's how it was when I was in Boston. Like we didn't, you know, we couldn't really want to worry about suburbia because everything was just, everything was a major, major headache to try to mess with anything. And it was just really, we had many other, other more important issues to deal with. So I was, it was interesting to get this email at the same time that, that I was staying in suburbia. Um, it worked out okay. I got out. Uh, don't worry. And I don't love suburbia. But uh, I did a lot of bus riding, which is, uh, that's one thing in suburbia. It's like, if you have to get stuck in suburbia, try to get stuck in suburbia where you can take buses because uh, biking is going to be really frustrating. Other things you can check out on the Critical Transit Facebook page include the town in Alberta, the small town in Alberta, uh, whose bike share program fails after the 
only bike goes missing. Um, I thought that came from the onion, but it looks like it's a real headline. I don't know. The, uh, the, uh, director was on CBC radio and, um, that's an interesting read. You'll definitely get a chuckle out of that one. Um, there's a guy who is, uh, running the Bay cycle project who is trying to get, uh, water transportation. Yeah, basically he built a, he built a, basically a raft with a bike on top of it. You, you, it takes about 10 minutes to put your bike into this raft and then you just pedal it across the water. And he's demonstrated it in San Francisco Bay area and New York. Um, and that's really exciting because, uh, this would make a difference for a lot of people where water crossings are limited, expensive, or even prohibited. Showers that have been installed on Oakland's 40th street. Um, this is a ridiculous waste of paint. They basically just put some showers in the middle of the traffic lane and, uh, and they put a strip of green paint on it. Uh, those of you in Minneapolis should compare this to, uh, this is basically a, the Bryant Avenue, uh, quote unquote bike boulevard. Um, showers don't do anything. Showers are ridiculous. Um, it's just, it doesn't mean anything legally. Um, it doesn't mean anything in terms of like actual use of the street. It's just a lame excuse to placate bike advocates instead of making real improvements. Um, you always hear this, uh, you hear the same thing, um, in every city, every time you talk about this. And the quote here is the lane on 40th street nearest to the sidewalk is too narrow to be comfortably shared by both a bicyclist and a motorist. And another thing you hear uh, often is, uh, it's too narrow for a bike lane. There's not enough room for a bike lane. Or, you know, we need two lanes for cars, and so we don't have enough room for bike lanes. And, uh, you know, these all say basically, you know, uh, cars must come first, and bikes and pedestrians and anybody else who's not driving a car can fight over the scraps. But, uh, but always cars come first. And that's not how to uh, plan a fair system. Don't ever fall for sharrows. Uh, anybody wants to put in sharrows, it's like they're, they're obviously, they're, they're hiding something and they're trying to, uh, make you happy without actually doing anything. Oh, and there's the, the streetcar debate in DC. It's, uh, you know, this is apparently, well, it's not much of a debate. I guess maybe I'm trying to make it into a debate, but it's not really a debate. Um, the, I guess the, oh yeah. So, um, Sharrows DC on Twitter, uh, at Sharrows DC, as in District of Columbia, like Washington, D.C., uh, reports that 11 blocks of dedicated right-of-way for a streetcar, and then it's mixed with traffic. Now, what is the heck is the point of spending billions of dollars to build a bus that can't change lanes? That's what this is. This is a, that's what a streetcar is. A streetcar is, is just a bus that can't change lanes. Um, you can make it all nice and glamorous and you can, and fancy looking and you can promote the hell out of it, you you know, but that's what it is. Uh, why not just run a regular bus? Um, the people are attracted to these streetcars because they're shiny and and they look like rail and whatever, but they provide no benefits that a bus can't provide. And we, you know, I talked about this in the last show, but it's like, yeah, we, we just, you know, people get so excited about the idea of rail that they just spent how many billions of dollars did they spend on this, this, uh, you know, 11 blocks of dedicated right of way. You couldn't just put up some bollards for the bus that was there before. So I had a little discussion and I did some comments on this. So you can go and you can go and read, read my thoughts on that. And food stamps are getting cut. Yay. So more reason to, uh, stop building highways and tear down highways so that we'll have more money to feed people.
Okay, I'm done now. This is going way too long. And uh, there's enough news for the week. So go online, uh, criticaltransit.com, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Critical Transit. And you should send an email, get in touch, feedback at criticaltransit.com or via the contact form on the website. Also, head over to streets.mn and check out my latest post on Southwest Light Rail as well as uh, an upcoming post on streetcars that I'm going to have soon. And uh, you can check out... Uh, I made a guest appearance on episode number 50 of the streets.mn podcast talking about the Minneapolis elections and intergenerational politics. And I think it applies to a lot of cities that people are moving back to the cities, people want more services, better transportation, and more dense neighborhoods. So uh, check that out, all at streets.mn. You can find out all my work at criticaltransit.com. If you like what you hear and you appreciate the work that's involved in putting this show together and sharing all of the news and uh, opinions and awesomeness that is the Critical Transit Podcast, please consider spreading the word and consider making a donation to support the show. I desperately need a new microphone for the show, and uh, I would love to do that and uh, do some things to improve the audio quality, as well as spend more time on the show, producing better shows as well. And, uh, you know, that I can't do this uh, without you guys, so this is, um, it is uh, very time-intensive and can be resource-intensive as well. So I appreciate any support you can give, and, uh, you know, I will never make this not a free show, but you can, uh, you should share this around uh, with your friends and colleagues and all of the people who you want to make uh, informed decisions on transit planning and bike planning and other related things related to sustainable transportation. So uh, share the show around and uh, make a donation at criticaltransit.com if you're able to.